Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories today. Houthi terrorists still capable of significant attacks despite U.S. bombardment. The threat to shipping sees civilian crews abandoning ship and downing multi-million dollar U.S. drones. A retired Navy captain on the solution. The U.S. and Russia set to deliver arguments today as the top U.N. court hears arguments over Israel's territorial claims and more on the U.S. veto of a security resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The former FBI informant charged with falsely accusing the president and his son of corruption allegedly got his information from Russian intelligence. That's according to prosecutors. The details of a new court filing. Illegal immigrant minors accused of heinous crimes like murder and brutal assault. The House Judiciary Committee is demanding their case files, but the Department of Health and Human Services is citing privacy concerns. Unborn children are children, including frozen embryos. That's what the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled. How a break-in at a fertility clinic prompted the case. Capital One's $35 billion deal to buy Discover would create the largest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. What this means for your wallet with the host of Entity Business. And keeping your brain engaged with music could help prevent mental decline. How playing an instrument or singing can benefit brain health. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Wednesday, February 21st. Yeah, middle of the week. And you know, Evelyn, that Houthi strike on the British registered cargo ship in the Red Sea was the most damaging attack of theirs since they started. Right, and the Houthi did say that the ship sank. Yeah, and according to the UK government, the ship was taking on water, but the Royal Navy says they don't have any evidence of it actually sinking. Yeah, that's right. So the UK really condemned the attack, saying that it was absolutely unacceptable and that the allies now, uh, they and their allies now have the right to respond. So that is part of today's top news. The Pentagon has acknowledged after a month of US-led airstrikes, the Houthi terrorist group in Yemen is still capable of launching significant attacks. This week, the terror group damaged a ship that's now in danger of sinking on a critical shipping route in the Red Sea and shot down a US drone worth tens of millions of dollars. Here's the Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary yesterday. Initial indications are that it was shot down by a Houthi surface-to-air missile. In terms of um, recovery options, I know CENTCOM is looking into that, um, but I don't believe it has been recovered at this time. Our attacks are getting more sophisticated. That was the first time, as CENTCOM uh, put out, I think it was on Saturday, that the first time that they used an underwater unmanned vehicle to try and launch an attack. So absolutely, the attacks are sophisticated, their weapons are sophisticated, and we know where they're coming from. Uh, we know that Iran is continuing to supply them. U.S. Central Command says it shot down 10 bomb-carrying Houthi drones and a cruise missile so far this week. The military says it also hit a Houthi surface-to-air missile launcher and a drone ready to be launched. The Pentagon says coalition strikes are having an impact, but that the Houthis still have a very large inventory and are going to continue to use it. 
And for an assessment of the Houthi threat and the U.S. countermeasures, we bring in Captain James Fennell, a former director of intelligence for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Captain Fennell, really appreciate your time with the crew of the U.K.-registered Ruby Mar abandoning ship after the Houthi missile attack. What does the U.S. need to do to get this situation under control and thwart these terrorists? Well, good morning, and thanks for the invite. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation. It's been going on for some time, uh, as you, your news show just pointed out. And we're now at a significant point where uh, the 20-nation Operation Prosperity Guardian that the United States has put together is, is trying to keep the, 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 the Red Sea open and the Suez Canal open so that the world's uh, goods can continue to flow from Europe to Asia and, and to America. And the attacks are increasing in complexity and scale. Uh, we had on the 27th of January, the USS Kearney shot down a, what is believed to be the first time an anti-ship ballistic missile that was fired by the Houthis. And so the spokesman from the Pentagon was correct. We know where this is coming from. It's coming from Iran. And so we need to start thinking about what do we do to put pressure on Iran and other sources that are providing even Iran uh, funding and technology like China uh, that are being used by the Houthis. Because if we continue to try to defend each ship one missile at a time, uh, it's gonna, we're, somebody's going to make a mistake at some point and one of these missiles is going to get through. And some of these ballistic missiles that the Houthis have uh, have ranges from 140 to 500 kilometers with a warhead of 300 kilometers, which will, could sink a U.S. Navy warship and kill a crew of, say, three, 400 people. And so we don't want that to happen. We don't want it to happen to commercial vessels because it's the lifeblood of everybody's economy, and, 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 and that's devastating as well. So we have to do something different. And just trying to find Houthi rebels in the desert that are you know, being supported by the government of Yemen, being supported by Iran, we need to escalate our pressure campaign. And I'm not suggesting necessarily direct strikes on Iran right now, but that should be in the cards. We should have target lists to tell us where Iranian uh, munitions are. And then we need to start working on uh, their economic uh, sanctions and things of that nature that could put pressure on them to stop what they're doing. But right now, it doesn't look like we're being very effective. And th this is going to have a, a really significant impact on uh, people's lives, if not economically. But it could really have some li uh, impact on lives of U.S. Navy sailors. That is such a good point you make here, and, and a huge risk. I mean, the Houthis have attacked at least 45 ships so far, and this is jeopardizing about 15% of global maritime trade. The Houthis just shot down another $30 million MQ-9 Reaper drone, and they showed photos of it. The Houthis did that immediate handout. Is the U.S. using weaponry effectively in its operations against the Iran-backed group? I think we're using what we have that's available, and our sailors, I mean, you have to give them huge credit. They've been operating there, uh, you know, since 7 October. But when these attacks over the last two months, they've been defending against every kind of weapon, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles that are going, you know, almost, uh, you know, twice, two or three times the speed of sound, these anti-ship ballistic missiles that are five times the speed of sound. They're going against unmanned underwater vehicles that we, we heard about, these drones that, that they're using, the Houthis are using. So we're being attacked on all fronts. And uh, our guys are doing a great job, but uh, we need to do something more. And, and escalating this to put pressure on them to stop is what we need to do. Or, we, or we're going to have to have a massive bombing campaign in Yemen. And I'm not sure the world's ready for another one of those. 
Well, thank you so much for your analysis on this, Captain James Fennell, former Director of Intelligence for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Thank you. The U.S. proposed a United Nations Security Council draft resolution yesterday calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. The draft resolution calls for the release of all hostages and warns against an Israeli ground offensive into Rafah. The draft says that would result in further harm to civilians and have serious implications for regional peace and security. And meanwhile, the United Nations top court is hearing arguments from over 50 countries over Israel's territorial claims on disputed lands sought for a Palestinian state. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in the Israel-Hamas war. Six days of hearings at The Hague are underway over the legality of Israel's territorial claims. The case focuses on Gaza, East Jerusalem and the West Bank. The U.S. and Russia present arguments Wednesday, along with Egypt and France. Israel captured the area from Jordan and Egypt in the 1967 war. Palestinians want all three for an independent state. Israel considers the West Bank to be disputed territory, to be decided in negotiations. The Jewish state will not speak in this week's hearings, but stated the court's involvement could be harmful to negotiating a settlement. Washington in 2022 opposed the court issuing an opinion on the matter and is expected to argue it cannot rule. Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu Tuesday stated Israel is not prepared to pay any price in a deal to free hostages, and certainly not the delusional prices Hamas demands. He declared Israel is committed to continuing the war until it achieves all of its goals, eliminating Hamas, releasing all hostages, and ensuring that Gaza never threatens Israel again. There is no pressure, none, that can change this. The U.S. on Tuesday vetoed a United Nations resolution that demanded an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1. The U.K. abstained. That marks the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution on a ceasefire demand. NSC spokesman John Kirby explained the U.S. position after the vote. We just weren't able to support a resolution today that was going to put sensitive negotiations uh, in peril. And that's what we believe this resolution would do. Kirby says Middle East envoy Brett McGurk will visit Egypt Wednesday and be in Israel Thursday. That's for ongoing talks with Qatar on a temporary ceasefire hostage release deal. Over 100 hostages are still being held by Hamas after the terrorist group abducted over 250 people in its October 7th attack on Israel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. President Biden told reporters yesterday he intends to impose new major sanctions on Russia. I told you we'd be announcing sanctions on Russia. We'll have a major package announced on Friday. The White House said the new sanctions are to hold Russia accountable for the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the war in Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said yesterday the sanctions package will cover elements of the Russian defense industrial base and revenue sources for the Russian economy. The Kremlin has denied involvement in Navalny's death. And President Biden took issue with former President Trump's response to Alexei Navalny's death. The president wants Trump to condemn and hold Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable. Here's Biden's message posted to X. After Putin's most fierce opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, died in a Russian prison last week, the former president, Trump, and other Republicans refused to hold Putin accountable for his death. Instead, Trump said Navalny's death made him realize how bad America is. He said, and I quote, we are a nation in decline, a failing nation, end of quote. Why does Trump always blame America? Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Why can't Trump just say that? 
Biden was referencing a post by Trump where the former president said Navalny's sudden death made him more aware of what's happening in the U.S. Trump called it a slow, steady progression. Two anonymous sources told CNN that Biden has personally directed senior campaign aides to focus on highlighting any of Trump's comments that they view as inflammatory. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley also chimed in, criticizing her GOP rival for not condemning Putin as, in her own words, a murderous thug. Trump last night told Fox News he thinks Navalny was very brave, but should not have gone back to Russia. He says the U.S. is turning into a communist country, referencing his indictments. The lead GOP candidate says it's all because he's in politics. And a former FBI informant who made corruption claims about President Biden and Hunter Biden said he got information from officials associated with Russian intelligence. That's according to a court filing by prosecutors yesterday. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case against Alexander Smirnov. Prosecutors in a court filing Tuesday said former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov claimed to have extensive and extremely recent contacts with Russian spies. They say he admitted officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing a story about Hunter Biden and that Smirnov had planned to meet with one official during an upcoming overseas trip. But prosecutors with special counsel David Weiss's team did not reveal which story about Hunter Biden Smirnov allegedly got from the individuals. Smirnov is accused of falsely telling his handler that a Ukrainian energy company paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each around 2015. This claim became central to the Republican impeachment inquiry against the president in Congress. He allegedly told the FBI in September that Hunter Biden was making phone calls in a hotel that was bugged in Kyiv, Ukraine. He says Russian intelligence officers would use the hotel to gather compromising information. Federal agents have rejected this claim. The court paper stated evidence against Smirnov was strong. Prosecutors have requested Smirnov, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, be detained until trial, arguing he can get a new passport from the Israeli embassy and leave the country. For now, a judge has allowed Smirnov to be released on electric monitoring. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A Tuesday Supreme Court decision could shift the paradigm for students across the nation. Academic performance is no longer the main factor in determining who can attend one of the nation's most prestigious public schools, Virginia's Thomas Jefferson High School. NTD's Melina Wisecup has the story. Just months after the Supreme Court overhauled race-based admissions at Harvard University, it's now allowing a race-related policy at Virginia-based Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, one of the nation's highest-ranked public schools. The high court declined to rule on a newly enacted holistic admissions policy, which scraps who has the highest test scores and instead favors applicants who are either economically disadvantaged or who are learning English as a second language, a policy that some parents have said discriminates against Asian Americans. This is not only a discrimination against Asian Americans, they endanger our nation's technology leadership in the world by you know, worsening our shortage in STEM education. Since the policy was enacted in 2020, the elite science and tech school dropped in its ranking from number one to number five. The demographics changed too, the Asian population dropping from 73% to 54%, the number of black students increasing from 1% to 7%, and Hispanics rising from 3% to 11%. That tries to adjust for low-income zip codes, low-income neighborhoods that claims it's racially, facially neutral, 
but actually is discriminatory. It seems to stray a little bit from the ruling, or at least significantly weaken the ruling in the Students for Fair Admissions case. The performance of the black Hispanic is not as good as other racial group. They should address that, address the root cause. Two justices predicted ripple effects from leaving the policy in place. In their dissent opinion, Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas wrote, TJ's model itself has been trumpeted to potential replicators as a blueprint for evading the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up next, a bankruptcy judge is allowing Rudy Giuliani to fight the $148 million verdict in his defamation case as long as someone else pays for his legal bills. New York Attorney General Letitia James threatening to go after former President Trump's buildings if he can't pay his $355 million civil fraud fine. Is Governor Gavin Newsom plan B for Democrats? What President Biden says as he heads to California and how former President Trump's responding to Nikki Haley's refusal to quit. Good to have you back. Rudy Giuliani asked a judge yesterday to rule in his favor or grant a new trial in a lawsuit brought by two Georgia election workers. He was ordered to pay $148 million for falsely accusing them of election fraud. A federal jury in Washington ordered Giuliani to pay the two workers for reputational and emotional harm. They found he falsely claimed they rigged votes against former President Trump. The former New York mayor filed the motion after declaring bankruptcy. The bankruptcy judge gave him permission to challenge the damages as long as he funded it with donations instead of his own funds. Other lawsuits against Giuliani have been paused because of the bankruptcy proceedings. He was a leading member in Trump's legal team that sought to challenge 2020 election results. The jury handed down the defamation verdict in December after testimony from the election workers. They alleged they received racist threats after Giuliani accused them of improperly counting ballots. New York State Attorney General Letitia James had some strong words yesterday on the fraud trial ruling against former President Donald Trump. James says she's prepared to seize Trump's assets, including his skyscrapers, if he's unable to find the cash to pay off the over $350 million fine. A New York judge last week ordered Trump to pay the fine after ruling that he committed repeated and persistent fraud. The judge said the former president overstated his net worth to obtain better loan terms. Trump denies all wrongdoing and is appealing the fine. He has accused James of bias. Trump's appeal of the judgment may focus on his argument that there were no actual victims from the alleged conduct in the case. More than $2 million in legal bills. That's what former President Trump's leadership PAC paid out last month. The Political Action Committee Save America paid the largest amount of nearly $600,000 to the law firm of John Lauro. Lauro is representing the former president in the federal election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Last year alone, Save America spent more than $55 million on legal bills. 
That accounts for nearly 85% of its spending. Trump racked up an additional 1.9 million in unpaid legal bills at the end of January. That's according to a filing last night with federal regulators. President Biden reaching into the pockets of some of his wealthiest donors as his ability to run continues to raise questions. And former President Trump touting a fast-approaching GOP victory despite Nikki Haley refusing to drop out. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Despite polling showing President Biden with an underwater approval rating, his ability to raise money has been actually quite good. On Tuesday, his campaign touted having raised over $42 million in January alone, and that's adding to his fundraising edge over Trump. And this week, Biden's holding more fundraisers in some of the wealthiest parts of the country, namely in Silicon Valley and Hollywood. But as he was heading out to California on Tuesday, he was again faced with a question about his age and his ability to keep running as president. Watch. Starting California, Are you ready? Yes, sir. Well, I'm looking for, I'm looking at you. We're looking at you. Well, we're not exactly sure what that means, but Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday got a very similar question. Here's how he responded. Watch. If for whatever reason Biden won't be available for presidency, will you be interested to uh, join the ticket? No, no. It's uh, uh, President Biden's coming out to California tonight. He'll be in the Bay Area tomorrow, uh, and uh, I hope to be invited uh, to his inaugurals for his second term as president of the United States. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley is questioning the age of both Biden and Trump while vowing to stay in the race. That's why I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. And Trump's campaign on Tuesday called Nikki Haley a wailing loser, adding that Trump will secure the GOP nomination in just a few weeks. And President Biden, meanwhile, said on Tuesday that he doesn't care if he's going to face off with Trump or Haley this November. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Now for some insight into the paths to victory and what the voter metrics can tell us surrounding the South Carolina Republican primary Saturday is Lawrence Wilson, a political reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you for your time this morning, Lawrence. We know that Haley is trailing in the polls in her home state, but will we be able to make any inferences on future primaries and the general election based on voter metrics Saturday? Well, it's possible that we could. Uh, for example, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, Haley was trailing by about the same percentage as in this race, but she wound up exceeding expectations by about nine points. So that may show whether independents have a strong preference for Haley. We know that some independents and some Democrats even have said they're gonna cross over and vote in the Republican primary in South Carolina so they can vote for Haley against Trump. Uh, South Carolina has an open primary, so you don't have to be registered with the party in order to do that. So that's one thing we could see from this is how strong the movement is to, well, stop Trump, I guess you would say. Is it growing? Is it about the same or is it trailing off? Very interesting. Lawrence, does Haley have a path to victory in the Palmetto State? Would it take a great deal of that crossover voting that you were referencing to help her cross the finish line ahead of Trump? 
Yeah, experts say no. Uh, party leaders say no on both sides. Uh, experts are saying no. The gap is just too great. This could be a bump of a few percentage points. It's certainly not going to close a 30 plus percentage point gap. So Haley is widely expected to lose to Donald Trump by a significant margin on Saturday. This probably won't affect the outcome of the race, but it could tell something about how the electorate is feeling. And let's talk about the electorate. There's the demographic of black Americans that Trump has courted in this election cycle. Will the results in South Carolina give us an indication of whether or not that demographic has support for Trump? Well, it could. There have been a couple of polls recently that suggest that a good number of black Americans intend to vote for Donald Trump. Now, those are polls that's different from going to the polls and actually casting a ballot. This will be a, a good chance in a, a state that has a large uh, percentage black population uh, to test that theory. Uh, President Trump will be uh, at an event headlining at a black conservative event in Columbia, South Carolina on Friday night the day before this primary election. So he certainly has that in mind. And we'll see what the exit polling shows us about the black vote in this South Carolina primary. Yes, a lot to look into here with this data. And the black vote has been a little bit better off for Trump, according to some measures, with 17% indicating that they do support the former president. Regardless of the outcome here in South Carolina, Haley has pledged to press on with her campaign eyeing wins on Super Tuesday. How well does she need to do there to stay viable? Well, I, I don't know that she could possibly do well enough to make it seem like she has a an actual pathway to victory in this primary. If the polling is accurate and it has been so far, President Trump will probably clinch the number of delegates needed. Remember, it's not just the popular vote, it's delegates to the convention in July, but he'll probably clinch that number of delegates sometime in early March, uh, effectively handing him the nomination. Haley says she's not running for vice president. She's not setting herself up for a 2028 run. She just wants to give the people a choice in this race. We'll see how long that lasts after South Carolina and certainly after Super Tuesday. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your insight with us. Lawrence Wilson, political reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you. And with the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests on the ground coverage and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. And coming up, the House Judiciary Committee issuing a subpoena to a top Biden administration official. Lawmakers want more information on illegal minors who've committed violent crimes. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing a Catholic nonprofit that he claims is encouraging illegal immigration through its shelters. A wrongful death suit against a fertility clinic leads a state Supreme Court to protect embryos as children. That and more when we return. Good to have you back. A showdown over the case files of unaccompanied alien children. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra 
And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the case where the House Judiciary Committee is accusing the HHS of stonewalling their requests to see important documents. The House Judiciary Committee is conducting oversight of what it sees as HHS's mismanagement of the placement of unaccompanied alien children. It says unvetted minors have committed heinous criminal acts against Americans. The committee says it has asked HHS for files on these cases, but calls the agency's response woefully inadequate. The committee shared some examples of crimes committed on X, writing, A 15-year-old boy was murdered in Frederick, Maryland by alleged MS-13 gang members who entered the U.S. illegally. Why doesn't HHS want the committee to know whether these illegal aliens had gang tattoos before they were released? And in another post it wrote, An illegal alien who was released by HHS to a sponsor was charged with assaulting and murdering Maria Gonzalez just weeks before her 11th birthday. Why is HHS obstructing the committee's investigation into this criminal illegal alien? The girl was allegedly sexually assaulted and strangled to death. The committee says it's been asking HHS since June 2023 for specific files on the unaccompanied alien minors who've been charged with crimes like theft, brutal assault, and murder. It says HHS responded in September but gave reasons like privacy concerns for not sharing the files. The committee says after repeated follow-ups and requests, HHS offered in November to allow some in-camera review of documents. That is, if the committee agreed not to photograph or otherwise record any documents. In-camera review means the review of records privately in a judge's chamber or in a courtroom. While reviewing the documents, committee staff found that HHS had blacked out large sections of the documents. The department said the redactions covered personal identifying information and personal health information. The committee says HHS blacked out information about whether specific minors had identifying scars, marks, or tattoos, information that it says can be indicative of gang affiliation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And on Capitol Hill, Republican senators yesterday pressed for a full impeachment trial of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NTD's Luis Martinez has the details. Senator Rick Scott from Florida sent a letter to Vice President Kamala Harris this Tuesday encouraging her to fulfill her constitutional duty and serve over as presiding officer during the upcoming proceedings of the impeachment of Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. In the letter, Scott said Harris should be keenly interested in whether a high-ranking member of her administration is part of the root causes of the border crisis. He noted the vice president was appointed border czar by President Biden in 2021. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already announced that the Senate's pro-temporary president, Senator Patty Murray, will preside over the trial. In a separate letter, Republican Senators Mike Lee, Ted Cruz urged Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to join them in ensuring the Senate Democrats allow for a full trial. They warned the Democrats could try to dismiss the impeachment charges something the Senate has never done before. The Senate returns from a recess on the 26th of February. The Republican-appointed impeachment managers will then deliver the two articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Reporting from the U.S. Senate, Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. 
South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem ordered National Guard troops to deploy to the southern border. In a statement yesterday, she said, quote, the border is a war zone, so we're sending soldiers. Noem said 60 of the state's National Guard soldiers will deploy to the U.S.-Mexico border later this spring. The deployment is on a rolling basis for a three-month period. She said their primary mission will be construction of a wall to stem the flow of illegal immigrants, drug cartels and human trafficking into the U.S. This deployment will be South Dakota's fifth since Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a call for help in combating the growing border crisis. U.S. Customs and Border Protection recorded two and a half million encounters at the border last year. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced yesterday that he's suing a Catholic NGO. He's accusing the nonprofit of encouraging illegal immigration and is seeking to remove its license. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said Tuesday that he's seeking to end Annunciation House's operations in the Lone Star State. In a post on X, Paxton claimed NGOs are using taxpayer money to facilitate human smuggling across the border and his lawsuit aims to hold these organizations responsible for worsening illegal immigration. Operating in El Paso, Catholic nonprofit Annunciation House describes itself as a home to thousands of refugees and migrant poor. The organization was started in the 1970s by a group of young adults. Since then, the organization has expanded into a network of shelters across El Paso. They say they provide assistance to newly arrived border crossers. That includes food, shelter, and legal and medical services. But Paxton's lawsuit claims the actual operations of Annunciation House are quite different. The lawsuit alleges the organization appears to be openly violating many provisions of law. These include allowing illegal immigrants to elude examination from immigration officers, encouraging migrants to enter the country by concealing or harboring them, and transporting them in a manner equivalent to human smuggling. Annunciation House responded to the Attorney General's actions by calling a press conference on Friday, February 24th. They called Paxson's position illegal, immoral, and anti-faith, and said the organization's work is central to El Paso. NTD reached out to Annunciation House for comment, but didn't receive a response before airtime. And the Alabama Supreme Court ruled last week that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The court says they're entitled to the same legal rights as other unborn children. In the majority 7-2 ruling, Justice Jay Mitchell wrote, unborn children are children without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. The decision was issued in response to wrongful death suits brought against a fertility clinic in Mobile, Alabama in 2021. This after a patient broke into an IVF freezer and dropped a number of trays. The ruling allows three couples to sue the facility for wrongful death. Over in Missouri, two adults have been charged in connection with the deadly shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. 18-year-old Dominic Miller and 22-year-old Lindell Mays both face second-degree murder and other firearm-related charges. Here's a Jackson County prosecutor speaking on Tuesday. From the evidence, it appears that Defendant Mays, that's the first person I, I read off charges on, Defendant Mays was in a verbal argument with another individual. Mays pulled his handgun first. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms. 
The new charges come after two teenagers were detained last week for resisting arrest and the use of firearm. Officials say there could be more charges as the investigation continues. The February 14th shooting resulted in one death and 22 injuries. Both defendants are being held on a $1 million bond. And a mother of six and popular YouTube personality was sentenced yesterday to four consecutive se sentences of one to 15 years in a Utah prison. Ruby Frankie and her former business partner Jody Hildebrandt pleaded guilty last year to four counts of aggravated child abuse. Well, their sentences could range from four to 60 years. Utah law puts a cap of 30 years on consecutive sentences. The Utah Board of Pardons and Parole will consider their behavior while imprisoned, then decide how much of that time each will spend behind bars. While Frankie has shown remorse and cooperated with attorneys, a state prosecutor said Hildebrandt has not. She continues to place blame on the children. Ruby Frankie's husband has filed for divorce. Frankie and Hildebrandt have 30 days to appeal their sentences. And up next, Capital One is making a $35 billion bet that Americans will continue to rely on their credit cards. If approved, the company's acquisition of Discover will create the biggest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. What this means for consumers with Entities business host Don Ma. The price of becoming a U.S. citizen is going up. How much more can applicants expect to pay? We ask Don Ma, host of Entity Business, when we come back. Thanks for staying with us, everyone. And joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the financial world. So Don, let's hear your update. Okay, so a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, and one of them is Capital One's deal with uh, Discover, potentially, and as well as a quick update uh, on Walmart announcing yesterday that it's uh, wanting to buy Vizio, uh, the TV maker. So uh, let's start off with Capital One. Um, what I wanted to specifically talk to you guys about is uh, the deal and what it could pe could potentially mean uh, for consumers, uh, you know, like people, you and me. Uh, so first of all, if this deal is approved by regulators and shareholders, Capital One's acquisition will create uh, the biggest uh, U.S. credit card company by volume. Uh, essentially, uh, the company is betting that its credit cards are in uh, more people's wallets. It's spending a lot of money to make that bet. Uh, so at the moment, we're still a long way off uh, from the deal actually being finalized, given that the deal isn't expected to be uh, complete until late 2024 or early, early 2025. So that means Discover and Capital One uh, customers as of right now, won't see any immediate changes, um, but there's also the possibility that regulators could push the deadline even further out. So for a while, I think we're not going to see much. Right. A lot of regulatory scrutiny they'll, they'll have to face first, but what about years down the road then? What, what changes could we see there? Sure. Uh, so if we're looking down the road uh, to start off, uh, Capital One is going to switch 
from uh, MasterCard to the Discovery, uh, Discover Network rather, within the first few years. And this is according to the CEO in an earnings call yesterday. Uh, so the end goal here is to get more merchants to take Discover, and that's beneficial for consumers because it means uh, they can use their Discover cards in more places and also likely earn more rewards from those purchases. Now, all this hinges on the fact that the deal is approved by regulators, uh, but it seems like actually this deal could be well uh, positioned for approval, actually, because some lawmakers have accused Visa uh, and MasterCard of having a duopoly. So Capital One's deal could create actually new competition for MasterCard and Visa. And some regulators would like to see that. More competition is always good for consumers. So the combination of Capital One and Discover would create the biggest uh, U.S. credit card issuer with around $250 billion in credit card balance. Right, and Dan, well, since the larger credit card companies usually charge a higher rate than these smaller ones, experts are now warning that this merger could put the squeeze on card borrowers. But in other news, Walmart, there's another buy out there. What can you tell us there? Yeah, yeah. So Walmart announced this yesterday. Uh, it appears that uh, it doesn't want to only sell groceries, which is what it's known for, Walmart. Uh, it also wants to be a media and advertising giant like Amazon. So Walmart uh, wants to buy TV maker Vizio for $2.3 billion. And this is to shore up its advertising business to become a stronger rival to the likes of Amazon's ad business. And Walmart currently sells ads at physical stores and its website. So by acquiring Vizio, Walmart can now actually sell ads through streaming services on television. So Walmart believes it can add revenue by offering brands the opportunity to advertise on Vizio televisions and Walmart uh, seems like wants a bigger slice of brands uh, advertising spending to supplement its primarily uh, low margin actually retail business so groceries make up uh, more than half of its business uh, but its margins uh, profit margins actually is quite small on that front so owning Vizio not only gives Walmart a viewership data from thousands of uh, smart TVs but also gives it access to Vizio's smartcast operating system which uh, streams ad-supported content on its devices. Uh, so that business generated about $600 million in revenue in 2023, according to some analysts. So wow. yeah, definitely a boost to that profit margin. And it feels like that shift to tech has been a long time coming with them making investments here and there. And last year, they even actually took some of Amazon Prime Day's um, market share, which was interesting. So interesting to see how that plays out, if they can actually keep up. So, um, But let's move away from big tech for a moment. What else do you have for us? Yeah, uh, something about citizenship, U.S. citizenship, actually. So people applying for American citizenship can expect higher fees for the process. Starting April 1st, the cost of the application will to, to naturalize will climb to about 19%. Uh, the cost of a green card, uh, the first step to citizenship will jump as well. The naturalization application form is called an N-400. It costs $640 for the paper application or $725 for the fingerprint fee. Now the cost of both will now jump to $760 on April 1st. Just a quick update on that. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Thanks, Don. And stay with us. Keeping your brain engaged with music could help prevent mental decline. How playing an instrument or singing can benefit brain health when we come back.
Welcome back. There is an ancient Chinese saying that harmonious music is like medicine, it's healing. That's right, and now modern researchers are finding that engaging with music, like playing an instrument or singing, can be beneficial for brain health. I spoke with Brian Levy, the Director of Marketing and Business Development at Cambridge Caregivers, about how music therapy can help the elderly by keeping their brain youthful, so to speak, by preventing what he calls brain change. Here's what he said. First, let's talk about brain change. And could you start by defining what that is? Great. Thanks for having me. So brain change is somebody um, typically in our elder community who is experiencing a decline. And that happens in the brain, in the mind, um, where they've been diagnosed or not with some kind of uh, brain change, i.e. dementia, um, it could be Alzheimer's, et cetera, where their short-term memory is actually shrinking. Um, I have residents and clients that have a memory of six seconds. So tell me more about the changes that you see, um, let's say, before musical therapy and after. Literally have residents and clients that just, there's, there's, they're not engaging. They're not reacting. They can't communicate well or at all. And then bring in a music therapist or even turning on, I have a, a resident with an Alexa and she's completely nonverbal and really doesn't react much to, to, to people. Uh, but put on some Frank Sinatra and, um, you know, she'll move her body, move her head, kind of tap along with her hand and um, oftentimes even mouth some of the words and lyrics to the songs. What is it um, about playing an instrument or singing, singing that do- has this effect on our brain? Sure. It's just a very soothing way. It's, it's actually very therapeutic. It's kind of like... Um, um, it's a different way of communicating. People communicate with music and they can relate and it's very relaxing and very soothing. It's, it's like meditation. So tell me more about, because you were mentioning that you had this podcast, so tell me more about the benefits that you came across while doing research. What are the benefits of musical therapy apart from brain change? Sure. I mean, socialization, you know, you're, you're basically interacting with a musician, keeping the beat. It's very soothing. It's very engaging. Um, like I said, it's, it's meditative and um, it triggers a part of the brain that is not used because when you have brain change, you have no short-term memory at all. I mean, like I mentioned before, it could be six seconds, it could be four seconds, but you don't have much memory in terms of what just happened, but you can remember 40 years ago. And so you're essentially triggering a part of the brain that's not being used as, as you're declining with brain change. All right, thank you so much for these insights. Brian Levy, I really appreciate your time this morning. Nice being with you, thank you. All right, that was Brian Levy with Cambridge Caregivers and Manchester Care Homes. You know, I think the most important thing is to choose the right music. Studies have also shown that certain kinds of music can ne- negatively impact the mental well-being of young people. So when in doubt, choose wholesome, uplifting tunes. That's why I choose Mozart and Beethoven. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, good choice right there. All right. Um, just stay with us for a couple more seconds and we will kick off the second part of our broadcast. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award winning documentaries. 
We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. The U.S. and Russia set to deliver arguments today as the top U.N. court hears arguments over Israel's territorial claims and more on the U.S. veto of a security resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. President Biden will impose new sanctions on Russia. That's over the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the war in Ukraine. The former FBI informant charged with falsely accusing the president and his son of corruption allegedly got his information from Russian intelligence. That's according to prosecutors. The details of a new court filing. Candidate Nikki Haley trailing in the polls ahead of Saturday's South Carolina primary. Does she have any path to victory? Our guest weighs in. Illegal immigrant minors accused of heinous crimes like murder and brutal assault. The House Judiciary Committee is demanding their case files, but the Department of Health and Human Services is citing privacy concerns. Concerns rising over billionaire George Soros's buyout of hundreds of radio stations. Critics say the move could be an effort to influence public opinion ahead of the general election. An advocate shares his insight. And Tokyo residents enjoying the recent warm weather and early blooming cherry blossoms, but the unseasonable temperatures won't last long. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, February 21st. Today's top news, the U.S. proposed a United Nations Security Council draft resolution yesterday calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. The draft resolution calls for the release of all hostages and warns against an Israeli ground offensive into Rafah. The draft says that would result in further harm to civilians and have serious implications for regional peace and security. Meanwhile, the United Nations top court is hearing arguments from over 50 countries over Israel's territorial claims on disputed land sought for a Palestinian state. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in the Israel-Hamas war. Six days of hearings at The Hague are underway over the legality of Israel's territorial claims. The case focuses on Gaza, East Jerusalem and the West Bank. The U.S. and Russia present arguments Wednesday, along with Egypt and France. Israel captured the area from Jordan and Egypt in the 1967 war. Palestinians want all three for an independent state. Israel considers the West Bank to be disputed territory, to be decided in negotiations. The Jewish state will not speak in this week's hearings, but stated the court's involvement could be harmful to negotiating a settlement. Washington in 2022 opposed the court issuing an opinion on the matter and is expected to argue it cannot rule. Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu Tuesday stated Israel is not prepared to pay any price in a deal to free hostages, and certainly not the delusional prices Hamas demands. He declared Israel is committed to continuing the war until it achieves all of its goals, eliminating Hamas, releasing all hostages, and ensuring that Gaza never threatens Israel again. There is no pressure, none, that can change this. 
The U.S. on Tuesday vetoed a United Nations resolution that demanded an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1. The U.K. abstained. That marks the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution on a ceasefire demand. NSC spokesman John Kirby explained the U.S. position after the vote. We just weren't able to support a resolution today that was going to put sensitive negotiations uh, in peril. And that's what we believe this resolution would do. Kirby says Middle East envoy Brett McGurk will visit Egypt Wednesday and be in Israel Thursday. That's for ongoing talks with Qatar on a temporary ceasefire hostage release deal. Over 100 hostages are still being held by Hamas after the terrorist group abducted over 250 people in its October 7th attack on Israel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For an update on the war in Gaza, we bring in Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. Good morning, Jonathan. Good to see you. So first, could you give us an update on the progress of the war, especially now with some reports and analysts actually coming out saying that the war might end in the foreseeable future? Well, good morning and thanks for having me on. Um, as for it, the war ending, uh, I'm... Um, I'm cautious about stating when it will end or about the foreseeable future. It will end. And um, the point being, the reason why there has been this flurry of diplomatic activity is that because Israel is making real progress towards finishing the war. Um, Hamas has been backed into its last major enclave in Gaza, in Rafah. Um, its uh, capabilities of uh, fighting have been reduced markedly. Its ability to shoot missiles into Israel. We have shot over 15,000 missiles during and after the October 7th massacres. Um, that has been reduced. Um, Hamas is on its last legs. And so that is why uh, those who don't want Israel to actually win the war and to eliminate the terrorist threat from Hamas are trying to stop the war before that victory occurs. And uh, that is something that um, Israel's people, I just came back from uh, an extended stay there and covering the war. Um, that is something that I think the ma vast majority, the overwhelming majority, including many who don't back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, will not accept. They will not accept a situation in Gaza where Hamas is allowed to survive this war and if it survives it, it will declare itself the victor and it will be rightly be seen as the victor because it then will have gotten away with mass murder and will be able to make good on its pledges to repeat the October 7th massacre again and I again. See. That's something that Israel simply isn't going to allow. Okay, so let's talk about the role of, and the impact that UN could have uh, on all of this because the US just vetoed a resolution from Algeria, as we know, and proposed one themselves, as we also have heard earlier in the show, that for the first time involved language like, you know, words of, like ceasefire. So if the UN would be able to pass that, what would it, that change for Israel in the war and would it impact Israel in the war? Well, certainly a UN Security Council um, ceasefire resolution would put in Israel under tremendous pressure to stop its uh, campaign of self-defense. Um, the United States has always prevented such, uh, such measures from being passed in the UN Security Council. I would say that the US proposal is troubling because it raises the possibility. It's clearly meant as leverage over Netanyahu to try to make him stop the campaign, not so much because this administration thinks that Hamas should survive, but 
This is for political reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. Biden is under tremendous pressure from the left wing of the Democratic Party, his intersectional activist left wing, um, which, um, quite frankly, is at war with him. There, there's a civil, you know, an ongoing revolt within the administration, the Biden campaign, and the Democratic Party in general uh, from people who are against Israel. They are the minority of the American people. The majority of the American people support Israel. And I would say that Biden is foolish if he thinks that there are more votes to be lost among left-wingers and anti-Semites than among centrist pro-Israel Americans. Right. But Election that is the direction year. he's trending. Elections this year certainly pay, playing a role as well. So, mm -hmm. But before we go, just quickly, I would also like to ask about what an independent Saudi newspaper reported that the JNS also touched on. So it cited security sources and says Sinwar has fled to Egypt. What do you know about this? Well, um, those are the reports. I don't know that it's confirmed. Obviously, Sinwar, if it, it indicates the seriousness of uh, Hamas's predicament in Gaza, they know that it's only a matter of time unless someone from the international community saves them, whether it's Biden or the UN, before they are completely defeated, as they should be. They are the moral equivalent of the Nazis in 2024. Um, so obviously he's looking for an escape route, as are no doubt other Hamas cadres. Uh, most of the Hamas leadership is safe in Qatar, uh, but he's there. And uh, obviously um, he doesn't wish to be captured. He doesn't wish to be killed. He's, he's happy to let other Palestinians die. He's happy to let the whole Palestinian population die. And that's been shown by his mm -hmm. you know, ruthless uh, willingness to uh, use them as, uh, civil, you know, as human shields, as well as to launch a war that destroyed them. Uh, but right. um, it's not clear whether he's gone, but I'm sure he's thinking about it. Right. But as of now, just rumors. So thank you so much, Jonathan Tobin. I appreciate your insights on this. Thank you. And President Biden told reporters yesterday he intends to impose new major sanctions on Russia. I told you we'd be announcing sanctions on Russia. We'll have a major package announced on Friday. The White House said the new sanctions are to hold Russia accountable for the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the war in Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said yesterday the sanctions package will cover elements of the Russian defense industrial base and revenue sources for the Russian economy. The Kremlin has denied involvement in Navalny's death. And a former FBI informant who made corruption claims about President Biden and Hunter Biden said he got information from officials associated with Russian intelligence. That's according to a court filing by prosecutors yesterday. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case against Alexander Smirnov. Prosecutors in a court filing Tuesday said former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov claimed to have extensive and extremely recent contacts with Russian spies. They say he admitted officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing a story about Hunter Biden and that Smirnov had planned to meet with one official during an upcoming overseas trip. But prosecutors with special counsel David Weiss's team did not reveal which story about Hunter Biden Smirnov allegedly got from the individuals. Smirnov is accused of falsely telling his handler that a Ukrainian energy company paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each around 2015. This claim became central to the Republican impeachment inquiry against the president in Congress. He allegedly told the FBI in September that Hunter Biden was making phone calls in a hotel that was bugged in Kyiv, Ukraine. He says Russian intelligence officers would use the hotel to gather compromising information. Federal agents have rejected this claim. The court paper stated evidence against Smirnov was strong. 
Prosecutors have requested Smirnov, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, be detained until trial, arguing he can get a new passport from the Israeli embassy and leave the country. For now, a judge has allowed Smirnov to be released on electric monitoring. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A showdown over the case files of unaccompanied alien children. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the case where the House Judiciary Committee is accusing the HHS of stonewalling their requests to see important documents. The House Judiciary Committee is conducting oversight of what it sees as HHS's mismanagement of the placement of unaccompanied alien children. It says unvetted minors have committed heinous criminal acts against Americans. The committee says it has asked HHS for files on these cases, but calls the agency's response woefully inadequate. The committee says it's been asking HHS since June 2023 for specific files on the unaccompanied alien minors who've been charged with crimes like theft, brutal assault, and murder. It says HHS responded in September but gave reasons like privacy concerns for not sharing the files. The committee says after repeated follow-ups and requests, HHS offered in November to allow some in-camera review of documents. That is, if the committee agreed not to photograph or otherwise record any documents. In-camera review means the review of records privately in a judge's chamber or in a courtroom. While reviewing the documents, committee staff found that HHS had blacked out large sections of the documents. The department said the redactions covered personal identifying information and personal health information. The committee says HHS blacked out information about whether specific minors had identifying scars, marks, or tattoos, information that it says can be indicative of gang affiliation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, Nikki Haley trailing in the polls. Does she have any path to victory? What will the polling numbers show for future primaries and the general election? Billionaire George Soros, known for supporting progressive prosecutors, has acquired over 200 radio stations. What are the concerns? And is the timing suspect with an election coming up? An advocate shares his take. Tokyo is enjoying a period of warm weather, not to mention world-famous cherry blossoms. But will spring temperatures last long? Find out after the break. Good morning again, and more than $2 million in legal bills. That's what former President Trump's leadership PAC paid out last month. The Political Action Committee Save America paid the largest amount of nearly $600,000 to the law firm of John Loro. Loro is representing the former president in the federal election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Last year alone, Save America spent more than $55 million on legal bills. That accounts for nearly 85 percent of its spending. Trump racked up an additional $1.9 million in unpaid legal bills at the end of January. That's according to a filing last night with federal regulators. And earlier I spoke to Lawrence Wilson, a political reporter for the Epic Times. I asked him for some insight into the paths to victory and what voter metrics can tell us about this weekend's primary. Uh, in New Hampshire, uh, Haley was trailing by about the same percentage as in this race, but she wound up exceeding expectations by about nine points. 
So that may show whether independents have a strong preference for Haley. We know that some independents and some Democrats even have said they're going to cross over and vote in the Republican primary in South Carolina so they can vote for Haley against Trump. Uh, South Carolina has an open primary, so you don't have to be registered with the party in order to do that. So that's one thing we could see from this is how strong the movement is to, well, stop Trump, I guess you would say. Is it growing? Is it about the same or is it trailing off? Very interesting. Lawrence, does Haley have a path to victory in the Palmetto State? Would it take a great deal of that crossover voting that you were referencing to help her cross the finish line ahead of Trump? Yeah, experts say no. Uh, party leaders say no on both sides. Uh, experts are saying no. The gap is just too great. This could be a bump of a few percentage points. It's certainly not going to close a 30 plus percentage point gap. So Haley is widely expected to lose to Donald Trump by a significant margin on Saturday. This probably won't affect the outcome of the race, but it could tell something about how the electorate is feeling. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your insight with us. Lawrence Wilson, political reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on-the-ground coverage, and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. New York State Attorney General Letitia James had some strong words yesterday on the fraud trial ruling against former President Donald Trump. James says she's prepared to seize Trump's assets, including his skyscrapers, if he's unable to find the cash to pay off the over $350 million fine. A New York judge last week ordered Trump to pay the fine after ruling that he committed repeated and persistent fraud. The judge said the former president overstated his net worth to obtain better loan terms. Trump denies all wrongdoing and is appealing the fine. He has accused James of bias. Trump's appeal of the judgment may focus on his argument that there were no actual victims from the alleged conduct in the case. And billionaire George Soros has acquired 220 U.S. radio stations. He did so through his purchase of $400 million of debt held by the Audacity chain. We look into some of the concerns surrounding this with Jason Johnson, the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Uh, by acquiring a significant number of uh, radio stations, which are uh, which are media organizations, there's the opportunity for Soros and his interests to really put out that very, very progressive worldview um, right in the uh, immediately preceding a national election. And so uh, the concern is that uh, the information that could be disseminated through these uh, through his airwaves could be false, misleading. Otherwise, I encourage um, voters to support candidates with that really progressive uh, view. What are the risks to Soros' buyout here, given that his desire to reshape the justice system has been very pronounced? Yeah, so he, um, you know, Soros and his various um, interests have really found a way to stretch the dollar uh, in terms of supporting candidates directly, supporting PACs, and other things to be able to really what he's been able to do is install, we estimate, about 70 uh, progressive prosecutors across the country that have all adopted this essentially a singular model for 
quote unquote criminal justice reform, which means being soft on criminals, adopting whole categories of crime that are not to be prosecuted, um, steering even violent uh, criminals away from incarceration, acting generally more like public defenders than like prosecutors. And so, so that is, he's very clearly done that over the, ma the past number of years. He's been very successful at doing that. And I think that, that, that maybe this acquisition of news stations, radio stations, is just the next step in that evolution. So, Jason, we've established that there certainly are risks that could come with this acquisition. Are there any ways to counter it? Well, you know, I think the most important thing, and this is what we stress in our in our work when we identify and highlight the, the problem with progressive prosecutors, is just bringing more public awareness so that the average voter is more well-informed and understands where their information is coming from and can digest the information a little bit different, understanding, you know, the viewpoint of the news organization that's putting that's putting it out. I think that's half the battle. We try to bring a lot of attention to the, the progressive prosecutor concern directly because we want voters as they go in to realize these are important um, positions. Uh, they're locally elected prosecutors. And so I think information is half the battle. But I also think, it, you know, uh, to the extent that there are billionaires on the other side of the issue, um, maybe we have some billionaires that could could counter sort of the Soros effect by using their money in a way that brings greater awareness to the other side of the issue, not just the progressive view. Yes, knowing a media's backstory is very important. Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal and Defense Fund, thank you. Thank you. A United Airlines plane made an emergency landing in Denver Monday due to an issue with the wing. The flight was headed to Boston from San Francisco when the incident occurred. A passenger's cell phone video showed damage to the part of the wing known as the slat. Slats are movable panels on the front or leading edge of the wing used during takeoffs and landings. United did not say what caused the damage to the plane's wing. The Boeing 757-200 with 165 passengers aboard landed in Denver safely. Passengers were put on a different plane and flown to Boston as originally planned. The Federal Aviation Administration said it's investigating the incident. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, but also I feel like maybe that's not just going through my head, but another Boeing. Right. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Tokyo had unusually warm weather yesterday. Japan's weather agency recorded a high of 75 degrees in the Japanese capital. The unseasonably warm weather encouraged many to take off their outer layers as they snapped photos of early cherry blossoms and ate ice cream. It's pretty warm for this time of year. It's a bit unusual that the weather is warm enough for me to feel a bit sweaty. People in Tokyo should enjoy the brief spell of warm weather while it lasts, though. Temperatures in the city are forecast to plunge rapidly later this week. The Japanese Weather Agency expects lows of 37 degrees by the weekend. Certainly beautiful, though those flowers. Oh yeah, always great this time of year and when that's a nice little relief from the winter. Exactly. All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.